Welcome back to Conference Confessions. This is Jen. And this is Eva. This week we would like to talk about mental health. We would like to mostly focus around how that's affected the LGBTQ community specifically. So and we want to go into our disclaimer first. We're not licensed professionals. We're just opinionated. And what we say, we don't try to come off offensive. But Never. I might say some insensitive things, but <laughs> I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm just... We're just having a conversation, Jen. Absolutely. And we're learning. We're learning, too. And we're hoping that maybe somebody else listening to this learns something new, too. Yeah. And we want to just kind of highlight people that don't always get the spotlight in our community. So I want to start off by reading some statistics that I found online. Perfect. So mental illness affects all communities, including the lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning. So basically the LGBTQ plus community to sum it up. The LGBTQ plus individuals are three times as likely to experience a mental health disorder in comparison to individuals that identify as straight. Approximately 40% of LGBTQ plus adults had a mental illness in the past year. In comparison to the 18% of total adults who faced a mental illness in the past year. LGBTQ plus individuals are also more likely to abuse substances at an estimated percentage of 20 to 30%. Damn. So, and these factors are due to prejudice, discrimination, things along those lines, and that is compared to the 9% of substance abuse in the general population. That is a huge difference. So this is huge. And this was one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this because both of us have had experience with this, not yes. only with ourselves, but with our partners in general. Yes. I found this online and I think this is the best way to sum up mental illness because people, they, they take mental illness and they don't realize that it's not always a lifelong thing. Absolutely. It just happens. Mm -hmm. So I think to sum it up, mental health concerns become illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause frequent stress and affect your ability to function. Mental illness comes and goes, but with some people, it's always there. That makes sense. Yeah, because I think as far back as I can possibly remember, I've had anxiety to some point. But I also know people that it's just certain situations. And that kind of brings up, you know, like situational depression, seasonal depression. Anyone who's ever been through a breakup, situational oh my depression. God, yeah. Situational <laughs> depression for sure. <laughs> You're like, I don't eat. Food tastes like shit. Right. But I'm super thin. <laughs> So I'm going to go with it for now. I need to have a breakup so I can lose some weight. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Have you ever thought that? Unfortunately, I yeah, have. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and, then I'm, and then I'm like, that's kind of drastic. So I also figured it was important to touch on how I feel like we all suffer from mental illness because we were even classified as a mental illness for so long. Most of the time they've had the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh -huh. We've been classified at some point as a mental illness until the late 80s. So Jesus. one of the things that I found is it wasn't until 87 that homosexuality completely fell out of the DSM. In the 70s, they voted to change it from homosexuality to sexual orientation disturbance before dropping it completely in 87. The World Health Organization only removed homosexuality from ICD, International Classification of Disease, in 1992. So wow. it has not been that long since we have not even been considered as a mental illness. The reason I find that interesting is to put a story behind this. I was speaking with my mom the other day, mm -hmm. and she was having a really hard time wrapping her brain around whether or not it's a choice to be attracted to the same sex. And I was having a really hard time talking to her because I, I was like, why don't you understand? Yeah. And so I asked her, well, how are you attracted to somebody? How were, how are you attracted to my stepdad? And she said, well, when I met him, it just felt right. There was the vibe. We just connected. And butterflies. Yeah, there were butterflies and it just felt right. And it was like this aha moment. I was like, mom, that's exactly what it feels like for me. It's exactly what it feels like for Jen. That's exactly what it feels like for all these other people in the community. For everyone. Right. I, I'm not just going out there yeah. and dismissing these guys that walk by <laughs> me. I can appreciate that they're attractive, but I don't have that same kind of connection with men that I do with women. And for me, it's the person specifically. Yeah, it's, it's different not, for everybody. Absolutely. But that's a perfect way to put it, too, because you have the other bias where... Oh, you're gay, so you must be attracted to every woman. Are you attracted to every man? And no, I'm sure not. We had so. to talk about that, too. And she was like, oh, I guess I didn't think about that. <laughs> it's, it's almost literally like people look at it like it is a disorder. 
And it's Absolutely. like, oh, it's just who I'm freaking attracted to. Yep. But we, we fear what we don't know. And when we don't understand it, but we have curiosity, sometimes we don't know how to ask those questions. Right. So one, it's awesome that your mom even asked you that question. Two, it's even better that she gained some perspective on Mm -hmm. how that works. For me, it's like the psychological point of view on this because I geek out on that stuff. It's like, okay, there's got to be some correlation with the fact that you've classified all of these people as a mental illness. Right. You have told them that there's something wrong with their brain. It's there's something wrong with how they are attracted to other people. They're deviant. So you've got to look at the generational effect of that where there's already shame from every other element and then we're told there's something wrong with our brains. Well, and then to put it in the DSM, like, oh, you guys actually are pretty fucked up. You you are a deviance of norm. Right. Yeah. And to go off of what I said earlier, that mental health concerns become illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause frequent stress and affect your ability to function. And I could say the same thing about heterosexual relationships. Sometimes people just let relationships get in the way. It's not necessarily a woman and a woman or a man and a man or whatever. It's not a mental illness. It's just who you're attracted to. As I've aged, you see all these different relationships play out and you see these dynamics and you can have two women in a relationship where one is more masculine, one was more feminine. And those roles will play out almost like gender roles. So it's not specific to gender and it's not specific to your sexuality. In that same conversation I was having with my mom, she also brought up what's really difficult for her to understand in same-sex relationships is who's the masculine and who's the feminine. She brought that up as well. She goes, well, are you attracted to more masculine women? Are you attracted to more feminine women? And it kind of goes back to... I'm just attracted to what I like. And it's so hard for her and for a lot of heterosexual people to wrap their brain around, I'm not looking for somebody who's particularly masculine. I'm not looking for somebody who's particularly feminine. I'm looking for an individual that I work with. I'm I'm looking for an equal partner. Exactly. And that's what we all strive for. But it is very real that we tend to put everything on a binary scale. Yes. But it's just like mental illness. It's going to ebb and flow. Uh Like what my depression and anxiety does not affect me every day. Right. But in certain moments and issues in my life, it very much affects me and it can be crippling. But same thing with my gender role. I'm not necessarily 100% feminine. And I think that every person should embrace both their masculine and feminine. Yeah. But in a relationship dynamic, you may need me to take a more masculine role. You may need me to take a more protector role, whatever it is. And we're going off of a heterosexual normative because, again, you could break down that you shouldn't even assign those roles a gender. But societally, we always have. Well, you have to have a baseline. You have to have a baseline. So, I mean, no harm, you know, whatever. I get that there's a baseline. You know, I brought this up in the past. I think that's another reason I really wanted to do a podcast like this is just to explain. Absolutely. Not to come in and be like, I know I have all the wisdom. I'm this wise person and I have all the answers. It's like, no, you have questions. And me being in this community, I hope I can shed some light on that. And we have questions. There's things that we don't fully understand. Oh, there's so many things. Absolutely. But you can also look at it as generational. The gender roles were much stronger when our parents were starting their dating lives and way, way stronger when their parents were starting so you can see it almost dilute through every generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we are a lot more accepting of the fact that we may not always be one or the other. That everything's fluid. Yes. I think that's a great way to sum it up. But with all of that, with the DCSM and how they finally removed us as being a mental illness, uh, that also brought me into the points of conversion therapy. Tell me everything. It's such a dangerous field. But you think about it, it all played in together. Mm -hmm. Well, you have a mental illness. How do we treat that? And honestly, conversion therapy has been detrimental to a lot of gay people in our community. But it's also been a tool for us to argue that like, look, even with this, even with everything that you're trying to do to change who I am, I still am this person. So how is that a mental illness? If there was a way that conversion therapy actually worked, would you do that? That is a hell of a question, and I would say that me who I am now and knowing myself a, a lot better, mm-hmm. there's no way. Okay. I would say that in the coming out process, because it's painful, that there were times before you even come out where you're just like, I really wish this wasn't who I was. I, I wish Because this, this is going to be really, really hard. Of mm-hmm. course, it'd be easier just to be like, no, yeah, I'm the normal, going to get married, have 2.5 kids, white picket fence, 
but the reality of it is, is we all come in different flavors and sizes and yeah. varieties. My current state, there's no way. Yeah. And and being on the other side of that and having my my family support, I would never do that. Right. And I think even if you looked back on when I was doubting that, I would still say that you grow in your pain. Uh-huh. And that was something that I was and that's something I needed to deal with. And again, that's become very fluid. When I came out, it was like, I'm staunch lesbian. There's no room right. for anything 100, else. 120% in. Almost annoyingly gay oh, in your mm-hmm. face. And I, you see everyone do that you, when they first come out. It's just like, I've got to be so obnoxiously gay to you. Right. And it's almost like that all or nothing thing. Absolutely. Because I feel like you finally, you, you've defended yourself for so long. You're finally open. You're, you're finally out. And then you're just kind of like, fuck anyone that doesn't accept this 100%. Instead of reaching back out and realizing that these people that you had bonds with may just have questions. They're just gap in understanding. So I guess to sum it up, because I've had enough life experience and had enough ebbs and flows and had enough moments where I'm like, I would absolutely never be in that situation in my life. And then go, oh, I'm in that fucking situation. Uh that I'm realizing how fluid life is in general. Right. So it's you don't have salt. to Exactly. You don't have to be 100% something. You don't have to be in everyone's face about it either. Mm-hmm. You can just be who you are right. and that can change daily and you can accept that and not have to apologize for it. Right. And it's taken me a long time to realize that I may be super butch gen one day and then super femme gen the next day and super emotional the day after that and mm-hmm. all of those are are me. Yeah. They're parts of who I am. Do you think you would take it back? If there was a way to cure, if you will, my gayness, then I would just say no. Because I'm learning me now, and I'm starting to get a foothold on who I am. And at this point in my life, I'd say no. If this was five years ago, ten years ago. Middle of a breakup with a girl. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would have been like, yeah, let's do it. It's been easier for me to be with men. It's been difficult to be with women. That doesn't mean... I would change it now, though. And that's the other thing I've realized is everyone's complicated. Gender is not specific to that either. Everyone are different levels of emotionally challenged or emotionally accepted. I mean, there's just so many different ways to look at it. And that is not gender specific as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole boy shouldn't cry. No, everyone cries and everyone has emotions. Yeah, and that's (laughs) okay. Version therapy is any attempt to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. However, because the practice has come under increasing scrutiny, providers frequently change their terminology to avoid detection. Some of those terms can seem relatively harmless at first. Here are a few of these examples. Sexual orientation change efforts. Sexual attraction fluidity exploration in therapy. (laughs) Which, fucking say that about five times fast. Eliminating, reducing, and decreasing frequency or intensity of unwanted same-sex attraction. Reparative therapy, sexual reorientation efforts. That's adorable. Ex-gay ministry, promoting healthy sexuality, addressing sexual addictions and disorders, sexuality counseling, Mm -hmm. encouraging relation and sexual wholeness, because we're not whole, obviously. I'm not. I mean... Nah, it's not because of my sexuality. <laughs> it's because I need more cats. <laughs> more cats in my life. I just need to love myself better. That's right. No cats. And the last, healing sexual brokenness. You know what comes to mind when I hear those? It's very floofy. It's just very, it's very fluffy and it's very almost welcoming. Oh, it's a total scam. You know it's I a mean? total trick. That, well, that's yeah. what I mean. Like it's, it's. The way that they make that come across is, oh, you're finding yourself being attracted to the same sex. Well, come on over here because that's not right. We're just going to help you, but it's in a very tender, loving way. That's right. Components of conversion therapy often unintentionally conflate the attempted altering of sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression with the treatment of an actual condition such as sexual addiction. Some claim they are helping clients explore their sexual fluidity, or they emphasize that their clients struggle with unwanted same-sex attractions or gender confusion. One of the issues that I know of when I was growing up and coming out was... It wasn't necessarily the person that was volunteering for that. It was their parents pushing them into that program. And as a minor, unfortunately, you're just so limited on the rights you have to be like, I'm not going to do that. Uh San Francisco State University found that compared with LGBTQ youth people who were not rejected or were only a little rejected by their parents and caregivers, 
because of their gay, which by the way, how are you a little rejected? Anyway, <laughs> or transgender identity, highly rejected LGBTQ young people were 8.4 times more likely to report having attempted suicide, 5.9 times more likely to report high levels of depression, 3.4 times more likely to use illegal drugs, which we already touched on, and 3.4 times more likely to be at high risk for HIV and STDs. Because unfortunately, when you are kicked out of your parents' house and your 14-year-old kid, how are you going to make money? A lot of these kids are definitely subject to the sex traffic ring. For sure. And what's the alternative? It's kind of like either you bite the bullet and you just go to the conversion therapy or you find other ways to survive, which is unfortunate. So these numbers are fucking staggering, I just got to tell you. Sure. 698,000 LGBTQ adults ages 18 to 59 in the U.S. have received conversion therapy. Wow. Including about 350,000 LGBTQ adults who received treatment as adolescents. Wow. Isn't that insane? So this is still going on pretty it's regularly. It's unfortunately still an issue. So now that we've gone through that, I'm curious, what exactly happens in conversion therapy? So it's also kind of evolved. I think they're a little bit more sneaky with their methods now. But techniques used in conversion therapy in the United States and Western Europe have included ice pick lobotomies, wow. chemical castration with hormonal treatment, aversion treatments such as the application of electric shock to the hands and or genitals, nausea-inducing drugs. So they would do things like, let's say you're attracted to women. Well, mm -hmm. we would show you pictures of men, naked men, and every once in a while throw in a naked woman, if you had any type of arousal, you get electric shock. Oh, God. Or, you know, they would feed you things that would make you very nauseous and then show you a, a same-sex porno movie, basically. Mm -hmm. So that you're associating the sex act with vomiting wow. and being ill. Well, that's one way to do it. It's sad. That, I mean, you're basically just inducing trauma. Isn't that insane? Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. I'm going to be real, though. I get where they're coming from in the sense that they thought homosexuality was a mental disorder. I'm not going to like bring in religion and all that shit, but we're taught that it's a man and a woman yeah. and you need to procreate. And so when you've got somebody that's not going with the flow, I mean, it's weird. Let's think about how most religion was even based. We need our religion to survive. Yeah. So we need people to have more people. And we need to that to continue. Oh, God. So it's that encouragement of procreation. And mm -hmm. then you have, for some people, the biological urge to procreate, yeah. which that's the other which misconception. I've never had. No, but the other <laughs> misconception is because we're women, we should. And the other misconception is because you're in a heterosexual couple, you should. Yeah. You know? Well, I always ask my heterosexual friends that get married, when are you guys gonna have. You're that. I am okay. that bitch. You're that bitch. Got I'm it. I'm like, I just got a kitten. Where, where's your kid? <laughs> Come on. I've been in that situation multiple times, being in a long-term relationship yeah. where when you two can have babies, you would make great parents. It's just like, what kind of assumption are you making that I even want to do that? Yeah. Or even worse, what if you're talking to a couple that's been trying to do that? Yeah. And they've had miscarriage after miscarriage or adoption failing after adoption failing and and you're asking them why they're not a family yet, like the pain that they have to endure every time, yeah. which then causes the anxiety and depression. I personally have been able to rein that in a little bit about the whole asking about kids because I remember being married and people would ask, are you going to have kids? I remember sitting down with my ex-wife and we talked about it. And for like a good week, we were like, yeah, I think we want to have kids. And then literally after that week, both of us were like, that's a no for us. <laughs> Cats. Sometimes I wish I had that, but I've never had that ever. Yeah. We just know that about ourselves, just like people who want to have babies know that about themselves. So I know we touched on sexuality being fluid and uh, gender roles being fluid. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the Kinsey scale. Okay. I, I've heard of it, but I'm not as familiar with it. So, I mean, it's kind of outdated now, but at the time it was groundbreaking. It's further research into sexual orientation so it was normalizing and challenging the notion that this was a mental illness by highlighting that most people are not 100% gay or straight and that this is a fluid experience. Okay. Again, we are con we're continuums. We're constantly 
growing and changing. So how we were talking earlier where when I came out, I was just almost annoyingly gay. Right. And as I've aged and figured out and had other very emotionally bonding connections with other people and other genders, I've realized that it's it's not one or the other. I'm not 100% gay. I'm not 100% straight. But I've realized that I've bounced back and forth within my life. Basically, it, you can take this test. So it will kind of scale you on where you're at. Okay, like where you are, like Absolutely. on the sexuality And they're talking like maybe 3% of the populace actually are 100% gay okay. or 100% straight. They have better tests now mm-hmm. that, that also take into account some other factors. Because why they're saying this is so outdated is they don't take into account the difference between romantic and sexual orientation. Oh. So they are dismissing asexuality, 100%. Okay. Also gender being Mm non-binary. It's it's limited to looking at it only as a binary thing. Okay. But it was groundbreaking in getting some of this changed and, and making it to where the classifications of mental illness did not include homosexuality. Okay. I still encourage you to take the test. It's super interesting. I've taken it a couple times. And honestly, every time I've taken it, it's changed. So who knew? I'm I'm interested. I I think I'm going to do that on my free time. And if you look it up, anyone listening also, if you look it up, it will show you the more accurate and more up-to-date tests. So you can take those as well. Okay. So. All right. The next thing I wanted to talk about was mental health myths. Ooh, that's a good one. So this was kind of interesting. This grabbed me when I started list or when I started reading this. So one of the most common myths surrounding mental health is that one is either mentally healthy or mentally ill. I have found myself thinking that. Yeah, because it's like you're classified, so you're obviously just that's right. what you are. And I think there's a lot of people out there who do have mental illness, if you will. And once again, I'm gonna reiterate this here. Mental health concerns become mental illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause frequent stress and affect your ability to function. So I think a lot of people do experience mental illness throughout their life, but because they haven't been medically diagnosed, it's almost like they pretend like, oh, well, I'm not mentally ill, so I I can't even relate to what you're saying. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one of the most common myths surrounding mental health is that one is either mentally healthy or mentally ill. The reality is that one state of being exists on a continuum. So it's kind of like what you were talking about earlier. It's the ebbs and flows type of deal. Absolutely. Everything's on a scale. We're not 100% one thing or the other. Right. So you're not always 100% healthy. You're not always 100% mentally ill. I love that, yeah. And I think people forget that. Um, A person that is generally mentally healthy may experience emotional problems, changes in behavior, or have strained and unhealthy relationships with others. A person that is diagnosed with a mental illness may experience moments of clarity and be highly functional. The presence of illness does not always impede upon one's ability to live a meaningful and fulfilling life. I think that's absolutely true. I really liked that because it kind of puts things into perspective that every adult has experienced mental illness in their life at some point. That doesn't mean that it has stuck with them. So I think it's safe to assume that some individuals might exaggerate what they are experiencing and use it for attention. I've definitely experienced that with with people in my life. Right. And I'm going to be honest, I have been that person that I'm sure has exaggerated from time to time. I think we all do. I think so. And I, I think that's just us getting wrapped up in our emotions and not being able to take a step back and look at the whole picture. Sometimes I want to wallow. Yeah. Just listen to me for a minute and then I'll be done. Mm -hmm. But you also know which friends to call when you're like, I just want to wallow. Exactly. I know what friends to call when they're like, bitch, you're fucking up. Mm-hmm. And here's what you need to do to get back on track. Right. And the other friends where I'm like, I just want to be a whiny little shit right now. Right. I'll call you. To make it more personal, the other day I, I did go on a date and it didn't go quite how I thought it would. Okay. Not necessarily that I went in with expectations, but it was, I was hopeful mm-hmm. and it just didn't you guys work just out. just didn't hit off. We didn't hit it off. And I was really getting down on myself. That was the first date I've been on since before my last relationship. So oh, it's, damn. it's been about almost a year and a half, almost two years since I've actually been on a date. Damn. So I was kind of down on myself because it didn't, it didn't really work out. Yeah. And so I was kind of wallowing a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, well, let me put this into perspective. And 
I had some friends that I could talk to about it, and they kind of let me just vent a little bit, and that was really helpful. But just because I'm venting and possibly exaggerating how I'm feeling doesn't mean that I'm stuck in my mental illness. It also doesn't mean that your experience with your mental illness is not valid. Right. You know, I mean, it's just like telling stories. We all embellish a little bit. We add a little flavor and spice to our stories. If you're any kind of a good storyteller, but it's the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're not, you're not stuck in it. Exactly. You, You may embellish a little bit of where you're at, but in my experience with people in my past who have committed suicide, I was surprised every time. The people who are going to harm themselves, who are going to kill themselves, they're going to do it, and they're going to do it in silence. You're, there's not going to be, there's subtle warning signs. Sure. It's the person that, you know, calls you every week. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself if you don't come over. I'm going to kill myself if you don't go on a date with me. Right. Those people, it's like, and not that they don't eventually hurt themselves or kill themselves. It's just they're more likely. It's, it's more of an attention I I agree. And that brings me up to the next point. I think it's also safe to assume that many people underestimate just how much their mental health affects their everyday life and every aspect of their life. So I have a friend of mine that I have noticed definitely is struggling, and I think it's more of a mental illness. Myself having a mental illness, I can look at her and I can see similarities in behaviors. Yeah. And when I had brought it up to her, she kind of brushed it off. Mm-hmm. And I think that plays into this, that sometimes we live a certain way for so long that we don't realize that our behaviors aren't as healthy as they should be. And there are speed bumps that, we're, that we keep hitting, mm-hmm. but we think, or that she thinks is just life. Like she's not learning anything, but it's the same speed bump she's having to go over it's, again and again. Exactly. It's yeah. the same thing over and over and over. And mm-hmm. it's like, girl, you got to look at yourself. You got to listen to the people around you. I'm not coming at you to like throw shade or be a bitch or whatever. It's I care about you. And I really think you're underestimating these same things that keep coming up. Absolutely. I think it's more than just life. I think it's something that is possibly a mental illness that you continue to experience that you need to get help with. Yeah. And that's not bad to get help. No, and I think there's so much stigma around that, that Absolutely. if you're getting help, that there's something severely wrong with you. It's like, I go to counseling at least once a week. I swear by it. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's having an accountability buddy. It's having somebody who's completely unbiased in any situation that's going on in your life. They are the advocate of you. Mm-hmm. They don't give a shit about what anything else is happening in your life. They right. want to make sure that they're doing their job for you to be the best you you can. Right. And they're holding you accountable. They're saying, hey, this is a behavior that I'm noticing uh-huh. just in how you and I are talking that you should probably address. But I think it also goes into play where some people have this mental illness, they deal with it, becomes their new norm, and then they have very lucid days. And maybe this friend of yours, it's very much the same way where because that's her norm, that's spacing off of, yeah. that anything, that her good days are more just lucid days. Right. And again, you saying, hey, I think that I'm concerned and I think you need help. If she's not ready to hear it, it's the same thing of saying, hey, I think you need counseling. Yeah. If you if you force someone into those situations or you give that advice and they're not ready to hear it, they're not going to do it or they're not going to get out of it what they should. Right. Because counseling, what I've learned 100%, You only get out of it what you put into it. Right. I mean, if you do not think counseling works for you, it's because you're not doing the work on yourself and you're not being real. And you're looking at it in a way that I need to go to counseling and it's going to fix me. Or if I go to counseling, it's going to fix me. It helps, but you really have to put in the personal effort to experience the personal growth. I haven't gone to a therapist regularly in a couple of months and I absolutely see the difference in my life. I'm not holding myself accountable as much as I have in the past. It's like that self-awareness has been depleted because I'm not thinking the thoughts that I'm having. Mm -hmm. I'm just, it's becoming normal to have these thoughts. And so I think counseling is a great way. Therapy is a great way to find your equilibrium Mm -hmm. and to hold yourself accountable. And also if you have a good relationship with your therapist or you're seeing the right person, that this therapist can help you and also hold you accountable. Absolutely. And get your, your wheels turning and the gears turning. See, and I, that's what I love about this therapist. I've, this is my second time seeing her. And I think the first time I saw her for about four to five months, 
And then I quit for a while. Mm-hmm. Definitely same thing. Noticed a difference yeah. when I went back to her. What I like about her is she knows that she can push me a little bit harder. Those, I think I, those are the best. Absolutely. She's like, you have a higher emotional intelligence. I'm going to hold you to a higher standard than I hold some of my other clients. Right. Because I know, one, I know you can do the work. Two, I know you will do the work. Right. And three, I know that you'll get better, period. Mm -hmm. For me, it's anxiety, depression, and high-functioning codependency. Yeah. And those are the things I'm working on with her and realizing how ingrained that is. Again, that becomes your new norm. I'm trying to go through this whole codependent work with her and it's like, I can't even find a time frame that I wasn't. Yeah. Early as five years old, I'm basing these decisions, simple decisions that a five-year-old should not have to worry about on like, well, but if I stay the night at a friend's house, what if my parents die and I'm not there to die with them? What fucking five-year-old yeah. thinks that? So yeah. it's like, I've had these codependency issues and this high-functioning anxiety for as long as I can have memories. Uh-huh. So again, to have that look at myself and realize, oh shit, that's my problem. (laughs) And then to continue to go back to her, to call me out on my shit and hold me accountable and give me homework and make me check in has been amazing. You know, it's like, these are things I have to heal from in order to have better high functioning relationships and friendships and to have that dynamic work where it's not just one-sided or it's not me feeling like I need to give everything into it without even being asked. Right. And then building resentment yeah. that I'm giving everything to it. Well, like I mentioned earlier, it kind of just brings you back to this equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And you see the outliers in your behavior. Absolutely. And the behavior that you're accepting from other people. So I am a huge advocate for therapy. I think anybody, everybody should go And even if it's not on a regular basis, maybe it's just somebody that is a neutral person that you can just spew to. Yeah. (laughs) Monthly checkup, quarterly checkup. Like there's no requirements and that's what I love. If I'm having a bad week, I can see her three times. Yeah. If I'm having a great month, I don't contact her for the month. Right. But I think it does go back to being ready to see those parts of you that you're not ready to see. And then to also embrace them as just parts of you. There are no bad emotions. And I think that we get so stuck on that they have to be good or bad. There are no bad reactions. You're just processing however you can in this fucked up world. (laughs) So that leads me into my experience with mental illness. And I'm going to be pretty candid. I am now at a point in my life where I can be candid and I can take accountability for my mental illness, what's me and what is a part of the mental illness. So mood disorders compromise all types of depression and bipolar disorders. And when compared with the heterosexual population, one study found that the risk for depression and anxiety disorders over a period of 12 months or a lifetime were at least 1.5 times higher in the lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Damn. So I have bipolar 2 disorder. Okay, and so there's a 1 and a 2. The difference is with one, it's more extremes. So you get the mania. The best way to think of bipolar is it's like a wavelength. With bipolar one, there is not a lot of consistency in in your mood, whether you being medicated or not. You have very high highs, which are considered mania, where you do really risky behavior. Or obsessive behaviors, I've heard. Yeah. So obsessive behaviors, you might, it it almost falls into like an OCD type of thing. Absolutely. You check locks, you're constantly checking your account balance and your bank, you're doing things very repetitively, very high paced. You can also do really risky behaviors like spending a lot of money, being extremely sexually active, and just being completely out of character. One second, you're wanting to do one project and you buy everything for it and then you start. And then, you know, a few minutes later, you're like, hold on, I want to do something else. So with bipolar one, that's the mania part of it. And then when the wavelength drops, you get down into the depression. And this isn't just like seasonal depression. This isn't just, oh, I'm having a bad day. This This is like sleep for three days. Exactly. I can't function. I can barely make it to the bathroom. I'm having a hard time even talking or moving or getting out of bed. Damn. It's just complete low of low. 
and then it goes back up. So, and it also depends on the medicine, if you're medicating yourself properly, mm-hmm. how extreme, but with bipolar one, it is more extreme than bipolar two. Well, and I've heard a lot of people, it's really hard to stay on their medications because as soon as they start feeling better, they stop because either they're not feeling themselves, quote unquote, or they don't like that feeling of not having the mania. I, I can attest to that. So I don't have mania, I have hypomania. Okay. So it's not quite as high, but it, it can get up there, but it's not as extreme. Is it like situational? It can be situational, but I've noticed now that I'm pretty consistent. When I get hypomanic, I'm more so really energetic. I talk really fast. Sometimes I'm like, Eva, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, you don't need to talk right now. Yeah. It's been really helpful having a gym pass because some nights I'll sleep, you know, two or three hours, four hours. Yeah. And the rest of the night I'm just laying there and my brain is going and I'm like, I can't do this. Damn. So I'll go to the gym in the middle of the night and wear myself out. And then the lows aren't as extreme. I just kind of have down days and I don't necessarily feel like myself, but they don't last as long. It has been difficult regulating alcohol with it because alcohol really exacerbates the highs and the lows. Interesting. So there was a there was a few months where I took a hiatus from drinking any alcohol. I do remember that. And since then, I feel even more consistent than I have ever been. I usually have a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I've um, noticed that. I... I like to talk to people. I like to go out. I like to do things. I'm usually out later than I should probably be. <laughs> I probably need to sleep more than I do, but it's manageable. Yeah. I notice when it's getting really hypomanic, it's easier for me to recognize that and rein that in. So my life up to this point, I have had so many jobs. Yeah. And I mean, to be completely candid, I'm, I'm 27 years old. Mm-hmm. I've had 24 jobs. Damn. All right. So I'm a, I'm a renaissance woman, if you will. <laughs> Jack of all trades. That's right. That's has been stressful with the job thing, but I've been at this job now a year and a half, becoming up on two years here soon. Oh. And I'm extremely proud of myself because although I don't have it often, I still have those days where I'll wake up and be like, fuck it, I don't need a job. Like, I'd rather stay at home. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I could sleep or do anything or else. Or do anything else yeah. but that. Yeah. So it's been easier for me to talk myself out of thinking that way. I think that's fucking amazing. It's taken a long time for me to be like, no, I need this. Just because I'm feeling super hyper today doesn't mean that I need to quit my job. Gotcha. So if you were to just snapshot a day for me, what, what is it like to live with that? Because I, knowing you, I feel like you're extremely high functioning. You know, I mean, you're just, you're, you're pretty even kill. I love your pep and your step, I guess you could call it. But what would it be like in a, just a typical day for you? I experience more of a, the hypomania, but it's more consistent. It's not extreme. I don't do risky behavior. I don't, I've never really done risky behavior. I have a lot of energy. And sometimes I don't have an outlet for that energy. It almost turns into agitation. Like I feel like I need to go out and I need to get this energy out. Gotcha. That's perfect. I'm usually super upbeat, discussing things. I like to get other people's opinions. That makes sense, especially since, you know, you have empathy. You're getting a beautiful interaction with it, with someone right. else. Right, okay. and I, I think that it's kind of like this give and take thing. The best way for me to sum it up, I have a lot of energy and I have to find outlets. Mm-hmm. If I don't find those outlets, it's mm-hmm. almost like it kicks me into the depression. Okay. If I can't get out my energy and I can't express it in some way, it's like an overload and I just completely drop. But when I get depressive, I notice it definitely before my period. Oh, for sure. But what I mean by that is I just feel off. I don't have the energy. I don't necessarily want to chat as much. I still want to be around people, but I just don't have that much input. I've noticed like... Your, your depressive days are not, I'm never going to get out of bed. Or I'm not going to eat for five days. Yours are more just exactly an off day. You may want to come hang out, but you just want to be quiet. You just want to like chill. Be like, I don't really want to do anything. I don't want to really, I don't want to participate in the conversation. Can I just like hang out on your couch for a hot minute? And it's not depression how some people with bipolar one experience. It's the end of the world. Exactly. My life is never going to get better. It's just always going to be shit. I don't get super down on myself. The best way to put it is my mood feels muted. Yeah. It's just very blah. It's Mondays. Yeah. You have Mondays, and they could be on a Saturday. Right. But that's, uh, that's how I would describe it, just knowing you for a little while. It's like, they're, it's like how people describe Mondays. That's probably the extent of your depressive, which doesn't mean you don't 
moments or, or situational life situations that would push you into a deeper depression. Oh, but sure. that's fucking everybody. Right. But, <laughs> you know, as for it being the bipolar, I experience more of the hypomania, mm -hmm. which I'm actually grateful for because I get a lot more stuff done. I've, I meet a lot of people. I do a lot of things that most people that don't have bipolar wouldn't do. Yeah. And it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily risky behavior. It's I'll go skinny dipping or I will, I'll go rescue like five cats and <laughs> find them houses or I will completely rearrange the house or clean it from top to bottom. So it's not necessarily risky behaviors. It's not necessarily consistent normal behaviors, but I'm able to catch it before it becomes something I can't control. Well, it almost seems like your, your mania ties into your motivation a little bit too. It does. So you're like, if I'm, if I'm motivated, like I'm operating at a healthy level of mania. Right. If I'm above or below that, I'm, I'm not operating at a healthy level. Right. Okay. That makes so, sense. And I, I do take daily medicine. I notice that my mood, not mood swings, <laughs> but my mood changes um, at a higher pace when I introduce alcohol and drugs. So... I can have a couple of beers and that's fine, but the more hard liquor that I drink and the more often I drink, I bounce back and forth between hypomania and depressive episodes throughout the day. So now that I've really cut back on alcohol and I've cut back on hard drugs, mm -hmm. not hard drugs, but I've cut back on illegal substances, <laughs> it has done wonders for me. And I see when I'm getting more okay. hypomanic and I can calm myself down and I see when I'm starting to go into a depressive mode and it's easier for me to talk myself out of that. It's not bad. It's, I've learned to deal with it when I keep my substances in check and I have to do a lot of self-talk. It's self-awareness. It you have a, a level of self-awareness where you're like, nope, this is not quite where I need to be. Right. And I think that we could both agree that anytime you introduce drugs or alcohol to the situation, oh, it fucks everything you're up. absolutely messing with your, with, with that ability. Mm -hmm. Anxiety, depression, same thing. It's like we self-medicate or we tend to think we need to self-medicate. And I think it's awesome that you have that wherewithal and that you recognize that substance abuse and, and your medications don't work well and you're choosing a more balanced mental health life. Right. And a big part of that also has to do with the people that I have, that I have in my life. When I'm around people that tend to drink more, in the past I have tended to do the same and it gets me in trouble and I'm very unstable and it affects the relationships quite a bit. So like I said, now that I, I've really cut back on my liquor, I've cut back on my substances, I can see the changes. I'm 27 and I'm finally starting to get a handle on it, but I find myself to be really lucky. I'm still in my 20s and I'm starting to get a handle on it. Might be a little bit later than I'd like, but I, I'm okay. I'm really okay just because I have bipolar. I'm not this crazy person. I yeah. don't have extreme highs and lows. It's just, I have to be more in tune with my mood. It's literally, you science it out. It's a chemical imbalance that you are correcting with medication. Right. Period. And back to myths, we, we tend to associate you are your mental health. You are your mental disease. You're, and that's bullshit. It doesn't no, you're Eva. You, that's your a million other things. Yeah. And you also have bipolar. Right. You know, and that's, again, the stigma. So it's your self-discovery, but it's also being ready to see yourself that way, to right. delve into it, to realize that there's nothing wrong with who I am as a human being yeah. at all. I, I have a not, chemical imbalance, period. I, I, need, I need to find a way to function, be happy, and... And you fucking deserve it. You right. deserve the happy. You deserve the functioning. I think that's my biggest myth that I hate the most is that we define people by their mental illness. Yeah. And that's extremely unfair because we dismiss a lot of really amazing people that we should never even fucking dismiss, you know? No, I agree. Yeah. And even though I have bipolar, I, I'm going to be real. I find myself judging other people who have mental illnesses because I don't understand it. I get it. Like, I understand what it means, but I don't have the personal experience. So, like I said, I do find myself judging other people. Mm -hmm. And people judge me. I know that. And... It's human nature. We all judge each other no matter what. Right. So basically to sum it up, it's fine. My bipolar's fine. I have yeah. it under control. It's been something that I've had to learn to live with. And 
I don't think of it as another part of me. I think of it as I have bipolar and I'm going to live with it and I'm going to live a happy life with it. And I'm going to need to, one day when I don't have shitty dates, I'm going to be able to find somebody that understands to an extent and and is willing to work with me. And I'm okay with that. If it takes a while, that's okay. I got Mm. time, shoot. So at one point in time in my relationship with Melissa, she asked me to explain anxiety to her. And for the life of me, I can't. I found this poetry on Spotify and I was in tears, like panic attack tears. And I'm like, this is the best way to say it. So I sent it to her and I couldn't even listen to it with her in the room Uh without fucking bawling. (laughs) It was so accurate and I don't know how to explain it. I've heard funny renditions of how to explain anxiety and very earth shattering, like, holy shit, that's to the core. So when did you notice that that it could be anxiety? I, I imagine you felt it. Yes. But when were you able to put it? Like identify associate, it? Associate it with, oh, okay, I think this is anxiety. The first time I heard the definition of anxiety. Okay. But I would say that. How old were you? So when I actually knew what anxiety was, I was probably in middle school. Okay. When you're in your health class and they kind of talk about, they barely touch on mental health, but they did in our school. But when I look back on my life, I don't have a memory where anxiety was not 100% a driving force. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have a word for it. I didn't know that, I didn't know it was different. I didn't know that that was a weird thing. Yeah. I thought that everyone thought the way I did, you know, everyone thought that when they drove down the street and they saw a bag on the side of the road, it was obviously a dead body. Wow. I remember thinking that at five, six, seven years old, like that's somebody dead on the road. Their mom and dad are missing them. Or I didn't stay at a night at a friend's house until I was 13 years old. And it was because the friend I stayed with, her mom actually went and unplugged the phone and locked it in her bedroom with her. So I couldn't call my mom at two in the morning to pick me up. That was the first time I stayed the night at somebody's house because I had a crippling fear that me being there, something would happen to my family and I couldn't get to them. Mm -hmm. Or... They would die, and I wasn't there to die with them. And I'm going to be real. That is very extreme. <laughs> That's not something I didn't know that I've ever experienced. Everyone didn't think that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that wasn't, like, a thing. So for me, I've been diagnosed with high-function anxiety and then also high-functioning codependency. So high-functioning, what exactly does that mean? Basically, it just means, like, very rarely will it completely interrupt my life or okay. stop my life. I can operate at obscene amounts of stress levels okay that most people don't kind of relating it to your manic where it's like I can operate on less sleep I'm running scenarios through my head okay constantly that's fair you know you and I have a conversation you say the last thing just a little bit weird and we don't resolve it because I didn't say anything and then I didn't sleep for four hours because I'm trying to I played out every scenario of what that look meant interesting or what that sentence meant I'm like so Then I'm going through our entire relationship together and going, okay, so where did I fuck up? Mm -hmm. Where did I upset her? And I don't know how to shut that off. It is. I'm glad you made the correlation there because I've never been diagnosed high functioning, Mm -hmm. but I can relate to exactly what you're saying. Because there have been times in past relationships where somebody has said something or not said something and you go in this spiral. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to step away and think about it, you're like, God, that was so unrealistic. Why was I so obsessed with that? Well, and what I've realized as I'm, as I'm aging, as I'm trying to figure it out myself, is to just say it. If I'm not sure, ask, because most of the time I'm going to play it up in my head. It's going to be 40 million times worse than just asking the person that's involved in the situation with me. So for me, it's this buildup that is almost crippling. I'll obsess over it. I won't think about much else. Like, I can still function. I can still do my job. But any free time of not having something else to do, I'm thinking about that scenario, depending on what it is. So like decision making, mm-hmm. fucking impossible for me. That's something else I got to work on. And that correlates with the high functioning anxiety, but also the high functioning codependency. I can see that. So decision making is really hard for me. And if I make the decision and then you're just kind of like, oh, okay. Oh, what'd she mean by that? Yeah. So it's not okay. I should have made, fuck, I should have made the other decision. Mm -hmm. And now how do I backtrack to make the other decision? So people pleasing comes into it as well. So I've, I've struggled a lot with that, like the empathy part of it and the people pleasing part of it and realizing that hey, I can be my own person and I can say no to things. I can make decisions. I can do all of these things. So that's what I've been working on in counseling. But I, I, I was raised by 
very empathic, codependent, beautiful human beings. Well, when I first met you, that was something that just automatically stuck out to me. I felt that you were very empathetic, empathic, mm -hmm. and it, it was almost overwhelming for me. Yeah. I only had that a few times where I've met somebody and I was like, whoo, this is, <laughs> I gotta, I, I have to learn how to be in this relationship. And now that I've gotten to know you, and we've talked about anxiety before, and we've talked about codependency before. I really think that that correlates with how empathic you are because you go into a situation and the tiniest differences or the tiniest tone or look or shift really makes you jump into spiral. things and just spiral. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I've seen it before with you where... Yeah you hear something and I see you go into that mental hole mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh, I hope that bitch comes out soon. I want to talk to you. I right? got things to say. <laughs> but I can also be cleaning the house and writing, yeah. uh, writing out research and typing on the computer and fucking dissecting the hell out of it. So my question is how do you deal with this on a daily basis? How do you function with this? Cause I imagine it's, it's very, it can be very overwhelming. I honestly don't know how to function without it. My thing is realizing that it is something that I should work on realizing that it's not healthy for me. Like my cortisol levels are extremely high because it's a stress hormone. And if you're stressing all the time about everything and everyone and, you know, yeah. um, and that anxiety and codependency also relate a lot to control issues. So for me, it's self-realization. And then I also have issues with addiction because I self-medicate. So I'm trying to get a better grasp on the anxiety part of it and the empathy part of it because yeah. it's either all on or all off. Yes. I'm either completely shut off and cold to you or I am like, it's a full on energy flow right. and it's overwhelming. So I've got to find a way to dole that down or have it at half on. <laughs> and I think that in, in correlation, because I feel like a lot of people with empathy have some kind of mental disorder. I've just noticed that correlation in my interactions with people. And I tend to attract a lot of empaths. It's just something that I've noticed. Okay. For me, I have, I'm, I'm trying to work on finding healthier ways to deal with the anxiety and the empathy and the codependency. Okay. So I'm, I'm counseling and I'm doing anti-anxiety, anti-depression and self-medicating. So right. I want to get to the point where self-medication is, where I trust myself to handle the situation and my emotions enough okay. to where self-medication is not something that I use as a crutch anymore. Right. And I think there's such a stigma to self-medicating mm -hmm. because, and I'm going to be real, when I think of self-medicating, first thing that pops in my head is alcohol, mm -hmm. drugs. But when I was younger and I always knew that there was something off with my mood, mm -hmm. it was always... I was too young to be able to really understand how to be on a consistent level, how to get myself consistent. So what I would do is I would exercise. When I was in junior high, high school, and just out of high school, I remember going to the gym hours. First, it started out just a block of time, maybe three hours, four hours. It got to a point where every day I was at the gym for about eight hours. Damn, girl. And it was so numbing for me. It completely wiped me out. And then that day was okay because I was focused on something and it was consistent enough. So I can see it's not just drugs. It's not just mm -mm. alcohol. It's any obsessive behavior that you're using that is a detriment to you. Yes. Which we can agree working out is fantastic for you. Eight hours of working out a day is fucking not. So I'm learning to trust myself more and realize that. But when I'm through this therapy and trying to find, you know, like your point of trauma, which is not super, super important for what I'm trying to do, but just in the meditations and trying to figure that out, I remember at a young age seeing people's auras yeah. and honestly, like skirting around them to avoid them. I'm like, and my mom going, what's wrong? Well, that's poopy brown. Just, I don't know what else to. Right. And so it's like, I feel like I've always just been very open, mm -hmm. <laughs> like just sucking all of it in yeah. and then pushing it all out and not knowing how to push it out. Yeah. And so I'm tr trying to learn the tools so I don't need to self-medicate and ideally to where I need medication only when I'm having, it's more situational. Okay. So. Well, and I can relate to that as well, even from when 
I was younger, I remember mm -hmm. being able to feel people mm. and being able to like be in this weird in tune with them and like knowing their intentions, like reading between the lines. They're saying this and you're going, but what you're really saying is Exactly. And mm -hmm. I think and, and I do think there is a correlation with mental illness. Absolutely. I, and I and I don't think it's just when people experience mental illness. I think it's when they live with it. And it's a constant. When I am consistent in my moods I notice how in tune to every single person I am. Absolutely. And it can be exhausting. It's fucking exhausting. And it, and it takes so much control, personal control, to be able to allow bits and pieces of it in, but not to take it on. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've really been working on, is being able to empathize with people and being able to feel them, but not take it on. And I think it's something I'm going to work on the rest of my life, but I can completely relate to you, and I yeah. absolutely think it correlates with mental illness because you're constantly absolutely. trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. Well, I can relate to the manic states, too. It's like I feel like we're closer. Just, I mean, that's when you were describing that. I'm like, fuck yeah, that's like just a consistent flow of anxiety. I wanted to say this one thing that my counselor gave me that I, I yeah. try to say to myself often as a fellow empath, that you have empathy and you have sympathy. Mm -hmm. The difference is sympathy, let's say we're in a boat, you fall out, and you're drowning. Sympathy is I, th I throw you a lifeline. Empathy is I jump in to get you and drown myself trying to get you back to the boat. Uh-huh. So that's one of the best ways that she's wow. able, right? Okay, I like that. Yeah, so she's like, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. You can relate, you can sympathize, and you can help without being detrimental to yourself, to your own mental well-being. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm gonna, that, I am probably going to remember that forever now. I love it. That's great. I say that to myself all the time now because it's just like, wait, is this empathy or sympathy? And do I have the capacity right now for empathy? And the other thing is asking. I've learned that I don't need to always interject my advice. If you want it, ask. Or if I want to give it to you, I will ask you. Exactly. And if you need my help, I'm not going to just, again, empathy. I'm not going to jump in and drown with you. Yeah. But if you ask me for help, I can help you with a lot more. Right. Because I'm getting a choice and I'm, I'm able to gauge, oh, I can give a little bit. So it's helping me gauge my empathy meter too. That's interesting. So I think that's a fantastic way to put it. Along those same lines, a tool that helps me is I always have to remind myself that my perception is my reality. And what that means to me is how am I perceiving the situation that I'm in? Am I perceiving it through my hypomanic mind? Am I perceiving it through my depressive mind? Or am I perceiving it through more of a consistent mind space? Okay. So that's something that's really helped me. I'm always trying to gauge what my perception is. So it helps me basically keep my mood and stuff in check. Absolutely. So if you're like, oh, this is my manic response. Right. And in this situation, I would like to go with that. Right. Okay. So just trying to keep things as consistent as possible. That's basically my goal throughout the day. My perception is my reality, so. I love that. I think that this has been an amazing fucking phenomenal discussion, and I doubt it will be our last. I know that we could definitely touch on several things that we've brought up in a more deeper dive. Everybody needs to be aware of their mental health. Everybody needs to hold themselves accountable. Now that we've come to a conclusion with this episode, what are your takeaways from it, Jen? I would say my takeaways are that there's a lot of stigma with mental illness that I have loved seeing diminish over the years that I think it's extremely important to check in with yourself. And if you're ready to really delve into what makes you you and things that maybe are not healthy for, for your own well-being, to seek out a counselor, to seek out help, and to realize that you're not alone, that we all have some form, whether it's a consistent lifetime battle or a moment in time, that that's how we relate. We relate to each other through emotions. We relate to each other through experiences. So there's nothing wrong with you. You are not your mental illness. And you can be a fully functioning member of society. And you can have very meaningful relationships. Just for me, it's my biggest takeaway is if you need help, reach out. And don't let the shame or the stigma push you away from getting the help that you need to love yourself better. I think that's right on point. And my takeaway from this is similar to that. Mental illness is just that. I mean, everybody has it. Absolutely. Everybody has experienced it at one point in time 
if they haven't, they most likely will. Being able to have resources and being willing to open up and talk about it, not only with your therapist, but to be able to relate in a healthy way to others and share your experience, I think is probably one of the most important things that we can do. We have to be able to relate to others and just be able to accept ourselves. It's a daily thing. So even though I have bipolar, I'm okay with it. I'm learning to live with it and not the end of the fucking world. No, and you're gonna find a partner that, and friends and family that will support you in that no matter right. what, and that will see you for who you really are. Reach out and, and definitely rely on your support systems. And if you don't have one, build one. If you can't build one, buy one. <laughs> <laughs> for real. If you guys have any questions, if you want to learn more about our personal experiences with what we deal with on a daily basis, or you just want to give your feedback on this episode, please reach out to us. Yeah, we'd love to hear your mental illness stories. Absolutely. This isn't just us ranting. We're talking about this because we want to get your gears moving and to have conversations amongst yourselves. I would also like to point out some resources that we have here in Utah. Wasatch Mental Health, National Alliance on Mental Illness, International Healthcare Behavioral Health Services, United Way of Central and Southern Utah. And then, of course, we have the Suicide Hotline. So please reach out, especially if you are somebody who's listening and has any desire to self-harm. Reach out. Get the support that you need. There's love out there. And there's people that understand. And there's people that will fully embrace you and do whatever they can to help you. Well, thanks for listening, everybody.